do I actually like medicine enough to want to go back into it? Right now, I'm thinking, realistically, I'm probably never going to go back. And that's a hard thing to admit to myself. I have all sorts of like various fears around that. Like, do I really want to identify as a YouTuber? Isn't that a bit like bad compared to identifying as a doctor? Because when you say you're a doctor, everyone gives you prestige and respect and stuff. What am I, YouTuber? YouTuber's like, what the, what the hell is that? Hello and welcome to another episode of Secret Leaders from Infamous Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and this is a UK startup podcast where you'll hear how top entrepreneurs are doing it so you can take your business to the next level. Today, I'm speaking to Ali Abdal. He's a doctor, founder, teacher, and YouTuber. His first business, SixMed, which he started in university in 2013, helps people get into medical schools and has been used by over 10,000 prospective doctors. But Ali recently took his career in a fascinating direction. He paused being a doctor to focus on becoming a YouTuber, teaching people how to become happier, healthier, and more productive. He now has over 2 million subscribers, and his videos have racked up over 145 million views. Ali and I discuss how you can become more productive, why having fun with your work is so important, and how to tell your mum that you're packing in medicine for YouTube. Oh, to be a fly on the wall for that conversation, huh? But for now, let's go back to the start. Yeah, so childhood involved a fair bit of moving around. I was born in Karachi, Pakistan, and then moved. To, we moved to Lesotho, which is a country within, like, surrounded by South Africa when I was, like, two. I lived there for, like, five years. For one year, we were homeschooled and moved around schools for a couple of years. And it was a lot of, you know, kind of playing with the kids in the playground. And me and my brother were the, were the lightest skin people that we knew around. Which, you know, at the time I took completely for granted. But when then when I moved to the UK in 2003 at the age of like seven and everyone around me was white and I was no longer the, I was, I was actually probably the darker skinned person who was in our, in our school. That was a real like, whoa, kind of culture shock moment. Once we moved to the UK, I started dabbling in the entrepreneurship type stuff. It was, I was about 11 years old uh, when I saw someone in the computer room at school who had right-clicked on the Google homepage and then clicked view source. And there was all this like code on the screen. I was like, oh my God, I want to learn to code. And so I had this journey of like, you know, I'd go to school and then I'd come home and be super excited to learn to code. And I taught myself like website stuff using various tutorials on the internet and books back in the day. And then every year me and my friends would come up with some harebrained scheme to try and make money on the internet. So most of my childhood was spent chasing this dream of making magical internet money. Mostly didn't work out and it was like a string of failures. But when I, when I did end up making magical internet money, I felt that a lot of the failures from childhood had been worth it. Yeah, raised by a single parent. My mum and dad separated when I was like two, so I don't really know my dad. So my mum and my grandma were the ones who kind of raised us. My mum's a doctor, so she'd be at work most of the day. And so my grandma was the one who kind of taught us English. She was also a school teacher on the side. So she taught us English and maths and things. Uh, you know, I was pretty smart. I got decent grades in school. And so for that combination of things, plus the fact that I'm Asian, Medicine was just like a, a pretty default path. And when I was applying to university, I was kind of torn between medicine and computer science. Medicine because it was the default path thing. Computer science was because I had this interest in coding and building stuff. And I reasoned at the time that being a doctor who knows how to code is more interesting than being a random dude who knows how to code. And I also reasoned that six years at med school would be more interesting than three years at, at university. So those were the kind of reason, real reasons why I applied for medicine. Obviously, I didn't say that in my interviews. I you know, gave something about loving science and wanting to help people, which is true. But like, honestly, those weren't, were, those weren't the main reasons. So I think right now what I'm doing was shaped by this 
this balancing act between the traditional prestigious path of medicine and this like more rogue path about building internet businesses to try and make magical internet money. Because I always did well academically and my mom and grandma kind of encouraged that, I feel it was like an intrinsic an intrinsic motivation to do really well in exams and to kind of come top of the year and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And I probably placed an unhealthy amount of my identity on the fact that I would come top of the year when I was younger. And so for someone in that position, it's a pretty small step to then think, you know what, let me apply to Oxford or Cambridge because those are like the elite places. It's also not too far of a stretch to say, let me apply to medicine at Oxford or Cambridge. Like it's a pretty standard path for someone who just has has really good grades at, grades at school. I wasn't dreaming to be an astronaut. I wasn't dreaming about being like a professional footballer or, or more seemingly unattainable things like that. And so it was certainly a long shot. Like I don't think anyone who applies thinks that they've got a, a strong chance of getting in. But I knew I, I had enough of a chance that I had to give it my best shot. And when I visited Cambridge a few times, I fell in love with the place and I thought, okay, I really have to go here. And so, yeah, I did everything I could to prepare for that. Okay. And then, you know, talking about actually being at Cambridge, you know, that's is that where you started your business, SixMed? Yeah, that's right. So throughout my school years from like age 12 to 19, I made a bunch of random ass businesses to try and make money and they all basically failed. I think I made about 50 pounds from one of them. And I was like over the moon when I got like this electronic check. That's a lot more than some startups have made in year five, mate. They've raised millions and yep. 50 quid is, <laughs> is on the horizon. So 50 quid was pretty good. And it was actually made because my one of my mates from school, he signed up. It was It was some affiliate pyramid marketing thing. And my friend from school got four of his family members' credit cards and signed up for four accounts to Love Film, which was like a blockbuster competitor before Netflix was a thing. And so I made £12.50 times four, which was £50. So I made that internet money when I was younger. But then when I got to university, I actually have an Evernote document from 2012 that I still have to this day where I was like, okay, how do I make money? Um, what am I good at? And the things I wrote that I was good at was number one, making websites, and number two, teaching, because I'd been into teaching and teaching maths and stuff. Uh, and number three, I did well in getting in the process of getting into med school. So I thought, you know what, I need to combine these things. Why don't I teach people how to get into med school, but turn it into a website so that I can market this thing nationally, like around the country, rather than just in my local neighborhood. And so it was those that combination of skills that led to my first company, uh, SixMed, which has helped thousands of people get into med school at this point, which is kind of cool. So I was very involved with the business for about seven years. So from 2012 through to 2019, I, I was I was heavily involved. In 2012, I, f I first had the idea, put everything together myself over the summer holidays. And I think around the time I'd been drinking some of the startup Kool-Aid. And so I knew something about like marketing stuff. And I knew that step one of creating something is to build the thing, which I, I you know, I created the course over a summer. I wrote all the materials. I, I, I did all that stuff. But then step two is marketing the thing. And the way I ended up marketing the thing was uh, there's a, a forum called The Student Room, which is like a very popular forum in the UK, where I, that, I used to spend a lot of time on when I was applying to medicine because you'd get all these threads of people sharing advice and flexing about how good their GCSE grades were and all, and all that jazz. And my brother actually had an account on The Student Room, which had like large amounts of karma points or whatever point system they use, because... When he was like 11, 12 years old, he was out on the student room giving health and relationships advice. So he would be replying to all these, you know, I really like this guy, but I don't know. I, I, I don't know if he likes me back. He'd be replying to these people being like, oh, you've got to ask him out. You know, don't worry about it. Embrace rejection. And so he built up this account that had loads of karma points. And I, I commandeered that account and started using it to post very helpful advice on how to get into med school. 
And subtly at the bottom of the account in my signature, I had a link to my courses. And so I was doing this like advertising hustle for about three years before they realized and banned the account for subtle advertising. But the, the principle there was the, the thing of giving lots and lots of value to people for free and then hoping that people like you enough to then check out the stuff that you were charging money for. And that was the model that started off my YouTube channel like five years down the line, which was the model of let me make videos that are really good at helping people to get into med school for free. And hopefully if people like me enough through that free content, they will then sign up to my paid products. I still think that's a very reasonable way of going about marketing or sales or building an audience, just giving loads and loads of value for free and then charging people for stuff further down the line. So that was something that we did well. I think something I did badly is not realizing, is feeling like I had to do everything myself, not realizing the power of delegation, not realizing the power of giving people ownership of stuff, not even realizing that there were bits that, that I didn't like doing that I was bad at, like logistics and finance and admin. And I could just hire someone to do those bits for me. That thought just never even crossed my mind. I guess because the stuff I'd been reading was, you know, things like the four hour work week, which was talk, talked about like outsourcing to freelancers. And I kept on thinking, oh, well, this is not the sort of thing that could be outsourced to someone in the Philippines. Like it requires knowledge of the medical system and how things work in the UK. It just didn't occur to me. I could just hire a friend to handle the logistical aspect of the business. So that was certainly a mistake I made through running the company. And now we're about to hire like, we've got a team of 12 people at the moment for my YouTube business and we're giving out offers to another six people to join the team this week. So now I'm very much in the opposite direction of, you know what, let me try and hire as many people as possible to try and add value and to do the things that I don't necessarily want to or like to do myself. When do you actually realize that you want to just pause being a doctor? Because I think that's like a super interesting thing that a lot of people would be fascinated to learn about. And I think, you know, in, in two senses, one, you've grown up and your ideal job is to be a doctor after Cambridge, etc. Um, it's family puppy, etc, etc. And then there's sort of being a YouTuber, which you've stumbled upon and also grown an immense skill at. Um, yet probably interestingly, you know, doctors are overvalued in society slash undervalued by society, but YouTube is straight up just undervalued. Yeah. Okay. So the leaving medicine thing is something I still think about probably way too much. It all started when I was 17 slash 18 and I read the four hour work week for the first time. And at this point I'd gotten into med school because I'd just been, I'd been following this path of like, oh, you know, it seems fun. Six years is more interesting than three years. I got into Cambridge. Great. This seems like it would be fun. And then I read the four hour work week, which talked about, you know, the idea of financial independence, passive income. That's where I first came across the parable of the Mexican fisherman. Uh, it's about this uh, American investment banker who goes to a Mexican fishing village and he sees this Mexican fisherman. And the guy is like, you know, fishing a couple of fish, selling them, that makes enough money to cover his family's needs. And then he spends time playing the guitar and like hanging out with his wife and hanging out with his mates. And the American says, hey, why, why don't you grow this bigger? Why don't you get investment? Why don't you build your own thing and then move to New York and then, you know, build your empire and kind of paints this picture of like what you could do with a business if you really wanted to. And the Mexican fisherman's like, all right, cool. Then what? And then what? And then what? And then the final kind of kicker of the story is at the end of the day, 30 years down the line, once the Mexican has become rich off of selling his business, he then retires to a Mexican fishing village and spends the morning for doing a little bit of fishing, spends the afternoon hanging out with his wife and spends the evening playing, playing guitar with his mates in the pub. And that story really hit me hard because it kind of helped me realize that 
this default script that I've been following that, you know, you work your way up and you work really hard when you're a doctor and then, you know, you get to the next rung of the ladder and the next one and the next one and then you become a consultant, which is a fully qualified doctor. And then like, like I hadn't really thought about it. And the parable of the Mexican fisherman, which I got from the four hour work week, made me realize that enjoying the stuff that you're doing day to day is actually really important. So that piece of insight was added to another piece of insight, which is something I started to do when I first got into med school, which was anytime I'd meet a doctor, I would ask them the question that, you know, if you won the lottery, would you still continue to practice medicine? And the results of that poll continue to be staggering whenever I, because I, I continue to ask it when I do meet doctors, about half of them say that they would leave medicine immediately. And the other half say they would continue, but they would go part-time. And in my eight years of asking this question, I've never once met someone who said I would continue working in medicine full-time because I love it so much. I realized, hang on, given that I'm working so hard to get to this thing that, I, that is supposedly going to make me happy, and every single doctor I speak to says that they either want to leave completely or go part-time, something is afoot. And my follow-up question would be like, well, why don't you just go part-time then? And the answer was always around money. It was always around, you know, I need, I've got to pay the mortgage, got to feed the kids, got to pay, pay the private school fees and so on. And so I reasoned that with my insight of the four-hour work week and the Mexican fisherman and this particular lottery question, I realized I needed to make money doing other things so that I could do medicine for fun. And I realized that I never wanted to be in a position where I felt like I was shackled to a job that I didn't enjoy because I needed the money. And that was the position that a lot of, at least doctors in the UK that I knew were in, maybe doctors in the US feel differently because they make like eight times more money than doctors in the UK. But certainly for the people I was interacting with, that was, that was the pattern. And so from first year of med school onwards, like I always knew in the back of my mind, I need to make money from a, and I was thinking at the time, I was thinking tech startup <laughs> on the side so that I can do medicine for fun. And so six med initially, started making a decent amount of money. And each year I was making somewhere, you know, eventually somewhere in the region of 30 to 40,000 pounds, which is, which is identical to what a junior doctor makes in the UK as well. So I was matching the salary of a doctor through this side hustle business that I'd set up in university. And then when my YouTube channel started and things really started to take off, that was when I ticked that box of, okay, I now have enough money. And then I had to make a decision of, do I like medicine enough to continue to stay in it? Or do I go down this YouTube route completely? And the way that happened was sort of accidental because two years into working as a full-time doctor, there is a very natural career gap where at that point you then have to figure out what you specialize in. And most doctors, actually the majority of doctors then take a break at that point to do other things. Like some of them go to Australia, some of them do research projects, some of them do extra shifts for a bit to figure out what specialty they want to go into. And so I took a break. This was in August, 2020. I took a break intending to travel the world and find myself and like learn snowboarding and like go to Australia for a bit. And I was in touch with lots of hospitals in Australia where I wanted to get three months of emergency medicine experience. And then the pandemic hit. And all of this stuff around, oh, I want to go abroad and do all this, that, and the other, it all completely vanished. And I ended up just becoming a full-time YouTuber because that was the thing I could do from home. And in the last 12 months since I made that decision, again, the businesses, we had three people at the time. We've now got 12 and we're hiring another six this week. Like our revenue has gone sky high. It's pretty insane. And I now keep on thinking to what extent do I actually like medicine enough to want to go back into it? And right now I'm thinking, realistically, I'm probably never going to go back. And that's a hard thing to admit to myself. It's even harder thing to admit to my mom, who's like very on the, hey, you should do medicine thing. I have all sorts of like various fears around that. Like, you know, I, I built up my brand off the back of being a doctor or a medical student. And now if I leave completely, people will stop following what I say because now I have zero credibility. And do I really want to identify as a YouTuber? Isn't that a bit like, bad compared to identifying as a doctor. Cause as you said, when you say you're a doctor, everyone gives you prestige and respect and stuff. 
what am I, YouTuber? YouTuber's like, what the, what the hell is that? You want to be an influencer? What the hell is that? You know, it's all a bit weird. So these are the thoughts that go through my, my mind as I, as I think about this. But I think I've landed on the side of, I'm probably not going to go back to med- into medicine, but it's there as a backup option if I, if I really need it. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. You are very focused on, in your videos, in your content, in your messages with the world, you know, on just trying to be a little bit better every day or like, you know, you've self-branded and then been respected, you know, as the productivity guy and productivity really just comes down to trying to create some, some kind of vision for what you're trying to achieve, create some discipline around it and then, and then stick to it as often as, as you can, like ultimately and figure out what works for you. Of course, using that uh, framework, you could be the world's best doctor in theory, like you could if you were willing to put yourself towards that challenge. And I'd love to know just like what you've reflected on um, over that quandary, right? Over that thought process of, well, if I really committed to the creative process, so to speak, on productivity in medicine, where could that take me versus doing that on YouTube? Yeah, that's a really good point. So a bunch of things around my mind around this. One is that a about a year and a half ago, I started seriously asking myself the question, like, what the hell do I want to do with my life? And then, you know, I turned to Google, turned to a few books to figure out, like, I'm sure people have tried to answer this question at some point over the last, like, 3,000 years. Someone must have an answer. And, you know, ultimately the conclusion was there is no one answer to this question. We all have to figure out what bring, bring this meaning. But one exercise I found really helpful was thinking about what do I want written on my gravestone? And what do I want people to say at my funeral? And the gravestone question was interesting because I ended up, whenever I'd ask myself that question, I ended up landing on some combination of good dad, good husband, and inspirational teacher. 
And that was the bit that surprised me because it was like, it wasn't like incredible doctor who saves lives and who saved so many people's lives and helped so many patients. It was actually this thing about being a teacher. And I realized that all of the things that brought me joy over my life from the age of like 12, when I started teaching big kids younger than me, I always just got like real joy and kick and a lot of meaning out of teaching. So like when I was younger, I used to teach maths at the study center called Kumon. And then at university, I taught my courses, which were really fun. And I also, also used to teach medical students. And I still do some of that to this day. You, you know, when I was thinking, what does my dream life look like 10 years from now, 20 years from now? It didn't include going to the hospital and practicing medicine, but it did include teaching medical students. So I realized that the thing that gives me personal joy is teaching rather than practicing medicine. So that, that was an interesting insight. The other thing that was in my mind was... Uh, I came across this like equation for equation for living a good life, which basically said that happiness equals having fun day to day or enjoying your day to day and meaning equals being useful to other people slash having some kind of impact beyond yourself. So I was like, okay, cool. And when I was weighing up the medicine versus not medicine, i.e. YouTube, internet, entrepreneur, creator, influencer type person thing day to day, that is much more fun than practicing medicine. Like medicine is kind of fun. Like I, I, I genuinely did enjoy my time as a doctor, but having done a few shifts over the last few months as well, and now really having that stark comparison of if I could choose to design my life however, however I wanted, would it look like going into hospital for eight to 10 hours for a shift and then coming home? Probably not, unless I had medical students with me, in which case it would be fun. Or would it look like being able to do what I want in terms of teaching, t- teaching people at scale, reading, writing, explaining stuff on the internet, working with my team. So that the YouTuber side of thing is much more fun day to day. And then I was thinking, okay, what about impact? You know, impact impact is clearly important. There's this really good blog post on the website 80,000 Hours, which kind of tries to, tries to help people figure out what to do with their careers, which is 80,000 hours of their lives, and tries to figure out, you know, what are the most high impact careers you can have? And this is a guy, I think his name is Gregory Lewis, who's done a whole statistical analysis of how many lives does a doctor actually save? And the number is a lot lower than, than you would think. It's around like... 25 throughout the course of an entire career with various assumptions. People can check the maths on that if they want. But that, crucially, that, that doesn't account for counterfactual impact, like meaning that if I wasn't a doctor, given that I'm in the UK where there is a surplus of people applying to medicine and a surplus of doctors for the specialty training fields that I would want, if I didn't get into specialty training as an emergency medic, the next person on the list would have done. And so me removing myself from the system as a doctor has very negligible net impact on the system overall because I am not particularly special as a doctor. Like most doctors are, you know, they're good. But ultimately being a doctor is about kind of recognizing things and following guidelines because and following following the evidence. Yes, in dramas like House, there is this like, you know, godlike figure who can magically come, acro- come across things that no one else can. But for the most part, most doctors are following, following the book and, and playing things by the book as they should because a good medical system is one that does not rely on the extraordinary talents of individuals, but in fact, one where the system as a whole is the thing that helps people. So I reasoned, and maybe I'm just bullshitting myself, but I reasoned that um, my net impact as a doctor, bearing in mind if I wasn't one, someone else would just take my place, is fairly, fairly minimal. Whereas my net impact as a YouTuber making this sort of content, yes, you could argue that the world doesn't need more YouTubers, but if the messages and stuff I get are anything to go by, if I wasn't being the YouTuber, it's not so clear that someone else would fill that void and take my place because it is more of a kind of personal creative thing. And so following those two thoughts process where it's like being a YouTuber is just objectively more fun than being a doctor, at least for me, because it involves teaching and teaching is the thing that I really value. And also I think teaching on the internet has more of an quote impact than being a doctor does, 
which is very unfashionable to say because people are always like, oh my God, being a doctor has an unquantifiable impact. You know, that difference you make, being nice to someone in the time of need, yes, of course that's impact and that's an impact that a doctor has, but it's not impact that I am uniquely capable of having. Like someone else would have taken my place and would have probably done just as good a job in being nice to the patient in that position. So counterfactual impact and fun were the two broad drivers of this ultimate decision to weighing up being a YouTuber versus being a doctor. Well, let's talk about your mum on that basis. So have you told her? And if so, how how has that gone? And what does she think? Yeah, I mean, I've told her a few times. It it tends not to go down particularly well. <laughs> I've told her a few times is all you really need to say on that. Anyone yeah. with a mum <laughs> will know what that really means. It means if you had to sell her once and she was fine with it, that's all good. <laughs> I don't want it to come across like I'm mum bashing because I'm really not. Because, you know, my mum is a doctor. She moved us to this country, you know, worked, struggled really hard as a single parent to prioritise our education sacrificed everything so that we could have a good education and me and my brother could get into Oxford and Cambridge. And for me to then be like, you know what, screw this, I'm going to be a YouTuber. It's like a really, really hard thing because it's like, you know, a parent obviously only wants the best for their kids. And I think in my mum's model of the world and actually in most parents' model of the world, it's quite a lot more risk averse than the kids' model of the world. And so to kind of our parents' generation, getting having a stable job in a prestigious career is actually like a pretty pretty reasonable life strategy. If you're saying to your parents, I'm going to drop out of university and start a startup, that's like weird. And very few parents would be like oh, totally okay with that. Be like, all right, mate, yeah, go for it. They'd be like, hang on, shouldn't you finish university? Shouldn't you like get a stable job? So I think obviously my mom wants the best for me and thinks the way to do that is to do medicine alongside the YouTube stuff. And her reasonable point there is that, you know, people started following you because of the medicine thing. Wouldn't it be nice if you continued it? Uh, and I was like, yeah, that's a, a reasonable argument. Her other point is that all your friends are doing medicine and while life is not a competition and stuff, you know, 10 years from now when they're all consultants and qualified and doing cool things in medicine, you're going to feel bad about it. And you, you might feel that, you know, you're, you've missed the boat and you're missing out because they're in this thing and you're not in it anymore. I was like, yeah, that's, that, that is also reasonable. We, we actually had a conversation. I think it was, like, it was yesterday. She was making these very reasonable points. I was like, yeah, I, I completely buy that. But I don't think these points are a good enough reason to continue doing something that I don't, I'm not, I'm not actually that passionate about, you know, my true source of meaning and joy is in teaching, not in practicing medicine. And so doing medicine for the sake of keeping up with my friends and being able to have banter, medical banter with them slash for the sake of keeping the audience happy in this theoretical future where people know or give a shit that I left medicine to become a YouTuber, probably not the best reasons. So those, it's that sort of conversation that we keep on having. But I feel like every time we have the conversation, I make a little bit more progress and she becomes a little bit more okay with the decision. Yeah, I love it. Let's talk very briefly on personal brand. What did you think about personal brand, generally speaking, before you started this YouTube game? Yeah, before I started the YouTube game, I hadn't really come across the phrase personal brand. It was when I started the YouTube thing and started drinking the Gary Vaynerchuk Kool-Aid that I came across the phrase. And now I am a, I am very bullish on personal brand. Uh, some people have a bit of a kind of vomiting in their mouth reaction to the phrase personal brand. But I mean, a personal brand is essentially just a professional reputation. Everyone has a personal brand. Everyone has a professional reputation. Even if you're like a, a consultant surgeon, especially then you really have a professional reputation based on like how well respected you are, how many publications you got, how nice your website looks, whether you do private practice, like in any field, in a way, as you ascend the hierarchy, your personal brand, i.e. your reputation becomes more and more important. And so the way I think about it is, well, given that we all have a personal brand anyway, like whatever we do about it, why not take the step to actually be a bit more intentional about the stuff that we're putting out there 
And it's convenient that to me, given the thing that I enjoy is teaching and it's pretty easy to build a personal brand off the back of teaching people stuff that works out quite nicely. And so it was really um, Austin Kleon's book, Show Your Work, when that I read in 2016 was a big um, catalyst for this, where before that, I'd always kind of thought of, toyed with the idea of setting up a personal blog and documenting my journey through like building SixMed and learning to code and stuff. And I'd always felt that, well, isn't it such a narcissistic twatish thing to have a personal blog? Like, what the hell? Who do I think I am? And then I read Show Your Work. And it's a, it's a book I recommend to everyone. Probably the book, I, the second most gifted book I've gifted after The Course of Love by Alain de Botton. Anyway, Show Your Work made me realize that actually you can build a personal brand off the back of sharing your work, documenting your process and helping people along who are on the same journey as you are. So I'm very keen on people to be more intentional about building their personal brands. Let's talk a little bit about um, your topic du jour, so to speak. So if our listeners are predominantly entrepreneurs, which they are, people working in startups, wanting to hear these stories, etc., then the big important word that everyone wants to optimize for all the time, productivity. Talk to us a little bit about what you know for productivity, what works best, and also how to handle productivity in an ever-changing external forced environment scenario. The way I'm currently thinking about this is that there are broadly two strands to productivity. It's worth worth defining it as, as well. Like industrial definitions of productivity is basically like output divided by time. The way I kind of think of it more, it's like meaningful output over time. Like we want to do things and we want to do things that are meaningful to us. And yes, if we can do them efficiently, then that's good as well. I think the word productivity is starting to feel a bit like a dirty word. Cal Newport had a good post in the New Yorker like two weeks ago where he talked about how, you know, he's famously wrote a book called Deep Work, which everyone like references when talking about productivity. When he now writes about productivity, people email him, email him back saying, why are you using the word productivity? The word productivity encourages like poor mental health and encourages hustle culture. He was like, hang on, it really, it really doesn't have to. Um, it just depends on whether you misuse it or not. But either way, I think it's worth defining as like productivity is meaningful output and being efficient with that meaningful output, which does require a level of like figuring out what's actually meaningful to us. What do we care about? Because if you're driving 100 miles, but you're driving in the wrong direction, you know, it's hard to pretend that that's, that's being productive. So that definition thing aside, I think there's sort of two strands when people think about, okay, I want to be more productive. How do I, how do I be more productive? Uh, strand number one is the technical side of it, which is like, I want to find the perfect to-do list app. I want to find the perfect note-taking system. I want to figure out how I can organize my calendar in a way that sends me notifications automatically. There's like that technical side of productivity, but there is also then the emotional side of productivity. And that is things like dealing with procrastination, dealing with distraction, dealing with burnout. And I actually call those, you know, I'm writing a book about this and currently I'm referencing those as the, the three horsemen, procrastination, distraction, and burnout. And usually, if the messages and emails I get from viewers are anything to go by, really it's the emotional side of productivity that more people struggle with than the technical side. If someone has gotten to the point where they're trying to optimize for the perfect to-do list app, they probably have, they either have the emotional side completely sorted, or more likely they're using the technical side as an excuse to not think about the emotional stuff. Anyway, procrastination, distraction, burnout. Now, how do we, how do we beat procrastination? Well, the, the way I think of it is that procrastination is really just a problem with getting started. Generally, you know, a law of inertia, Newton's first law, an object at rest requires a force to get start, get it moving. But once it's already moving, then it continues to stay in motion. And we've all had this experience where you're like, oh, I, I can't be bothered to go to the gym. But once you're there, you're like, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm here now. I might as well do my workout. Or 
I can't be bothered to start writing. But once you're in, once you're in it, you're like two minutes in, you're like, okay, this is actually kind of fun. I'm going to keep on going. So the way we solve procrastination is by making it easy. That's the solution. You've got to make it as easy as possible to do the thing. And I often say that all it takes is two minutes, two minutes to change your life. You just need to do the thing for two minutes. At that point, you can choose to abandon it completely, but more likely than not, once you've beaten that initial activation energy, you've gotten over the hump of procrastination. At that point, you will now continue going. So that is like the very rough, broad way of overcoming procrastination. Second horseman is distraction. Basically, I've started doing my work or the thing that I'm, I want to do, and I get distracted because I've got my phone or Netflix or whatever. Now, the solution to distraction, some people say it's all, you know, the solution is to throw away your phone. If you throw away your phones, lock it in a box for five hours, then you won't get distracted. But the way that I prefer to think about it is that really to beat distraction, if beating procrastination was about making it easy, then beating distraction is about making it fun. Because generally we don't get distracted from things that are fun. You don't get distracted from watching Netflix unless it's a really boring TV show. You don't get distracted from playing sports. You don't get distracted from hanging out with your friends because you're in that flow state and you're having fun. And so the way I think of it is like, what are all the different ways that we can make, make a potentially boring thing more fun? So that things like, you know, gamification, adding more of a challenge to it, adding a sense of progress. These things make video games feel fun, which is why we can make like mindless killing boars in World of Warcraft more fun because there's a sense of challenge and a sense of progress. Autonomy is another big driver of motivation. Daniel Pink talks about this in his book, Drive. Uh, he talks about how autonomy, mastery, and purpose are the three drivers of intrinsic motivation. So autonomy, if you feel like you get to do something rather than you have to do something, that is a big part of what makes the thing more fun when you feel like you've got options, when you feel like you can do what you want. So it's about finding ways to do the thing that you have to do in a way to make it your own so that you can take advantage of this lever of autonomy. There's mastery, which is about like getting good at the thing. Like if we're good at something, chances are we're going to find it fun. And if we're actively thinking about getting good at the thing, even if it's something boring like washing dishes, if you become the world expert in washing dishes and understanding how detergent works and all that shit, <laughs> washing dishes is going to become more of a fun activity. The other things are like, you know, adjust changing up your environment in a way that makes it more conducive to having fun. So having music on in the background, I like going to coffee shops and libraries because I prefer the vibe. I really don't like hanging out, hanging out at home because I get really bored and lonely when I'm at home. That kind of stuff in the environment and then adding a social element. So for most of us, doing stuff with friends is more fun than doing stuff on our own, which is why co-working spaces and libraries and coffee shops and inviting friends over to do work sessions, that's all like good vibes. And so these five things, which conveniently spelled spell games, G-A-M-E-S, gamification, autonomy, mastery, environment, and social. These are like the five levers that I found make things more fun and therefore make us less distracted and therefore make us more productive. But in a way, by the time we've gotten to this point, it's like, well, it's not really about optimizing for productivity because it is an end in itself to have more fun with the things that we're doing because, you know, all we have is one life, depending on who you ask, and we should kind of have fun. And then the third element is burnout. And really overcoming burnout is like taking appropriate rests, brain care. <laughs> it's the standard stuff around sleep, diet, nutrition, exercise. But there is an element of, which is kind of Daniel Pink's final driver of intrinsic motivation, which is purpose. And I think ultimately all of these hacks, you know, making stuff more fun, making it easy, it's all well and good. But if you're working on something that's fundamentally not meaningful to you and you can't figure out a way to reframe it to make it more meaningful, like, you know, even if you're doing something really, really boring, but you're doing it for the sake of your family, that can be meaning enough to sustain it. And there's this quote that the only difference between passion and burnout is how meaningful the, the activity is. Like if something is very, very meaningful, we tend not to get burned out by it. In theory, we tend to feel passionate about it. And whereas if something is not meaningful, that is when we start to get the burnout thing. So 
three horsemen on the emotional side of productivity, uh, procrastination, distraction, and burnout. And there are tons and tons of techniques in the literature and in scientific evidence to help deal with all three. Okay. Very comprehensive. So the second part of the conversation, what about when your world gets turned upside down or you're having to adapt to new things? Because a lot of what you talk about, you know, it makes loads of sense. Um, but one of the things even in, in that is environment, right? And having to switch environment, uh, you know, it's particularly interesting for people that are in, you know, remote or were in an office and now they're remote or they're remote. Now they're having to go back into the office or they're dealing with hybrid. Uh, how do you think all that st stuff works with productivity and what would be like some obvious and simple hacks to try and maintain at least a level of uh, getting the shit you need to get done on the day done? Yeah, no, I think it's really important. I actually interviewed someone on my podcast like two days ago who is a associate professor of behavioral sciences. Her name is Dr. Grace Lorden, and she's written a book called Think Big, which is all about like an encyclopedia of all of the things we know from behavioral science, i.e. evidence about how to uh, it's 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 sort of specifically aimed at helping people make career decisions but there's a lot of this sort of productivity stuff as well and one of the biggest tips is this idea of sanctity of space um and how when we are in different environments it does make a difference to the way that we how productive we are and how good we feel about the stuff that we're doing so when we were going to the office it's like you have a commute where you can listen to your audiobook or your podcast and you can go into work mode and then you're in the office and now you're in work mode and a lot of people, we started to go too much in the, in the wrong direction, but a lot of people would think that they are more productive in the office when they are in work mode. If the office scenario gets to a point where you're being interrupted every five seconds, at that point, you start to, you know, get off the, get off the curve a little bit. And now being in the office is less productive than being at home. But the point is that like having this environment where you are in a particular mode is really important. And so for me this morning, I had a bunch of Zoom meetings. And so I went to a local coffee shop. Um, Granger and Co. just down the road by King's Cross, uh, which is quite nice. I also have a different coffee shop that I go to when I want to write my book because I know that if I'm in the house or in my bedroom or on the dining table, I'm not going to make any progress in writing the book. Whereas if I go to this one coffee shop that I like, that is when I'm in book writing mode. And so that's my kind of book coffee shop. We've also got like a team co-working e-space office -y type thing where I go to do my YouTube stuff. So I think the more you can like separate out the venues for, this, for these, um, the easier it is to be productive. And what Dr. Lorden says as well is that you don't need to have eight coffee shops within walking distance of you to make this, uh, make this work. Even things like within the same room, having a different spot where you're doing different things. So for example, for people who have their desks in their bedroom, that's generally considered not optimal because it, it's nice. It's better for your quality of sleep if your bedroom is a sanctified space just for sleeping. But if you have to, then don't do work on your bed because then your bed is like your sleeping zone and your desk is your work zone. Or maybe you have a chair where you go to check your emails. And the more we can do that kind of like separation of environment stuff or separation of areas within the environment, apparently, according to the behavioral science evidence, that's when we can be more productive. On a very similar topic here, but, you know, just you, you mentioned earlier, you know, burnout and passion and stuff. What do you think is the line between getting stuff done and the sometimes, you know, toxic hustle culture. You know, you mentioned Gary Vee earlier, obviously had quite a big rebrand around that stuff. But yeah, what's your perspective on this sort of line? To be honest, my model is like, as long as you're having fun while also taking care of yourself, I don't really care how hard you're working. Like, you know, I'm, I'm sometimes, quote, in the office until 11 p.m. And people be like, well, why are you working until 11? I'm like, well, you know, I, ha I had dinner at eight and then I went to the gym until like half nine. And then I, I just had a load of energy left. So I just, I thought I'd do some more work because it's just genuinely fun. And there is that, that state that you can get to that Naval Ravikant talks about, which is where 
what looks like work to others feels like play to you. And so like right now, this conversation we're having is technically work and someone else might be like, oh, but it's the middle of it. You know, you're working by doing a podcast interview. But to me, it, it, it doesn't feel like work. It's just a genuinely fun. And so I think if you're in that mode where you are, you are actually having fun, then I don't like to abide by uh, <laughs> the cultural norms around I'm only going to work nine to five because it's just kind of fun. I think that can become a problem if you don't recognize, if you don't take care of yourself and don't do the simple things like sleep eight hours a day, have a decent diet, exercise a bit. And that is where you can be having so much fun that you can be burning out and not, and not really realizing it. But I think provided you're doing those basic things, I'm pretty agnostic on how hard people work. And I certainly end up working far more than is probably normal, but hey, it's fun. So it's all good. Yeah. Ali, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? The one I find myself thinking about all the time is a line from Brandon Sanderson's amazing fantasy series, The Stormlight Archive. And there is this like order of knights called the Knights Radiant in the series. They have this like set of ideals that everyone has to follow. And their first ideal is the phrase, life before death, strength before weakness, journey before destination. And it's that, that last bit, journey before destination, which I often, I often just think anytime I'm feeling stressed or feeling a bit like hashtag burnt out, I'm feeling a bit like, oh, you know, I'm going to go write my book, but I kind of CPA or feeling like, oh, this book needs to be a New York Times bestseller, but like, oh, I can't write anything right now. I just think, you know, journey before destination. It's about the journey. Who gives a shit about the destination? Like, you know, the journey is all we have. It's all good. As Miley Cyrus says, ain't about how fast I get there. Ain't about what's waiting on the other side. It's the climb. It's all about the climb. And the more I remind myself that the journey is more important than the destination, the more I get a spring in my step and enjoy myself and don't worry too much about the goal on the other end. We're now going on a two-week break. Have a good few weeks. This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Lower Street Media.